0: Hello and welcome to the second series of Multiscale Musings. We are a network of computational science PhD students based at the University of Warwick who are producing a podcast all about theory and computation in the physical sciences. I'm your host, Idil, and joining me today is Christopher Woodgate, a PhD student from the Warwick Physics Department. Today we will be discussing one of the most important computational methods used in theory and simulation, and that is a quantum mechanical modelling method known as density functional theory, otherwise known as DFT. Joining us in today's discussion is none other than Professor Kieran Burke from the University of California, Irvine. Right. So hello, Kieran, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's a pleasure having you join us all the way from the US, which I guess is kind of a very small perk of lockdown with online conferencing being now sort of the, the norm of how we're doing things. Um, so I guess we'd like to start by asking you, could you perhaps introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and just you know some of your research interests, really?
1: Uh,
2: yes. So hi, uh, my name's Kiron Burke. I'm a professor at the University of California in Irvine. Irvine is on the on the southern coast of California, about midway between Los Angeles and San Diego, and I'm a professor of both chemistry and of physics here at Irvine. Uh, My research interests are are rather broad. Uh, I work on the fundamentals, mostly of density functional theory, which is used in electronic structure calculations, sort of the quantum mechanics of atoms, molecules, and solids. Uh, And we work using... Sort of mathematics, physics, ke- chemistry and computer science. And then within physics, uh, we work in mathematical physics, plasma physics, condensed matter physics, and atomic and molecular physics. And within chemistry, mostly quantum chemistry uh, and nanochemistry and surface science. Uh, in computer science, we're mostly doing machine learning uh, and in mathematics, uh, I would call it analysis. So that's sort of the breadth of my research interests. We don't do large-scale computations ourselves. When we need to do one, we ask some professionals. Uh, we are not professionals at doing that.
0: No, so that's quite a quite a breadth of uh, research interests um, and quite multidisciplinary. And it's quite apt, given our podcast is called Multiscale Musings. <laughs> Quite nice there. Okay, so now for some sort of more light-hearted questions. You know, we like to start our podcasts by asking our speakers about some of their hobbies. Now, these could be either pre or post lockdown.
2: Uh, yes. Uh, so, in general, my hobbies are I like hiking a lot. And here in Southern California, you can go to the mountains for snow or the various deserts, high desert and low desert and i find them very uh, beautiful and sort of quiet and uh, one can sort of think when you're in the desert and interests are i tend to read a lot so a lot of history and a lot of novels especially uh, murder mysteries uh, especially the scandinavian noir types uh, like the harry hole mysteries since lockdown i would say I've developed more of an interest in in drinking wine, more of it and better quality. Yeah, uh, as in fact I think many people have. Uh, but mostly I like drinking beer, especially uh, IPA, uh, which is great here in Southern California.
1: Oh, fair enough. Yeah, very nice. Okay, then. So um, uh, something that perhaps a little bit more science related. Um, do, do you have any scientific heroes? Um, You know, and and if so, who are they and sort of what about them has inspired you?
2: So I would say, yes, so I have a few, uh, but probably the most outstanding one has to be Walter Cohn, uh, who was my PhD advisor, Uh, but I was one of his latest students. Uh, He was about five years older than I am now when Mm -hmm. he took me on, uh, but he was a survivor. Uh, he, was, he was born in Vienna in 1923, uh, Jewish, uh, got out on one of the kinder transports,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but most of his family was murdered in Auschwitz. Uh, so he survived. He went on, obviously, to thrive. Uh, he created the modern field of density functional theory about 1965. And very much to his surprise, 30 years later, he got a half share in a Nobel Prize in Chemistry for doing that. Uh, so, of which I think he donated the proceeds to charity. So, yeah, he was a very uh, inspiring figure, let's say, and also a very uh, demanding teacher. Yeah.
1: So yeah, he's a hero. uh, No, I think that's I think that's an excellent choice. I I, I, it almost makes me think I can guess the answer to to the to the to the follow up question to this, which is um, what what's your favorite scientific fact or or theory?
2: Uh, well, in a certain sense, professionally, uh, people often ask me sort of what is my favorite functional. Okay. They're often surprised by the answer because it is the Thomas Fermi functional from 1927. Uh, so independently, Llewellyn Thomas, who's British, uh, uh, invented it with uh, at the same time Enrico Fermi and they sort of did the first ever elect- non-trivial electronic structure calculation uh, in 1927. And it, Interesting fact is that his paper does not mention the Schrodinger equation because I don't think he'd heard of it. He sends it in November 1926 and Schrodinger invented it on the continent in the summer of 1926. And back in those days, I think communication wasn't as fast as it is today. So he never mentions it because he'd never heard of it and still he could write down a density functional theory that gives you energies of atoms uh, within about 10%. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah, very impressive. I hadn't looked at it that way before.
2: <laughs> uh, and it's very interesting to watch how he solves the equation numerically in 1926. Uh,
1: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. uh, he didn't have cell phone, for example. Yeah. It would have helped a lot. Yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: No, certainly, yeah. Right, okay. Um, I guess the next question I'd like to ask you is... Um, I guess a more general one, now being in the midst of a global pandemic, when we talked about this a bit earlier before the recording, <laughs> uh, how would you say the last year has affected your schedule and the shape of your science? So I'm talking sort of in regards to conferencing, meetings, maybe even research collaborations and so on.
2: It, well, so conferences and meetings, I do much less of, uh, which has a, the big upside is lack of jet lag. Uh, jet lag was becoming quite an issue Uh, but on on the downside the main thing I miss from that is the scientific interaction with people ranging from graduate students to you know professors who I've known for 20 or 30 years and especially I miss the when people talk about their work either formally or informally the sort of comments and criticism that you get back and forth, I think this is probably even better than sort of peer review of the papers. People who know you for a long time, for example, immediately, if they know the area, can tell you something interesting, something you've missed, possibly some mistake you've made, or at least something you've overlooked in the literature, and all that has sort of vanished, and it can't really be done by Zoom. so I've gone to f- much fewer conferences and I really worry about especially <laughs> new students uh, who've started and you know they're not just being immersed in, in sort of the regular conference meeting of other students from around the world in their field, seeing how a field works. All this kind of invisible knowledge uh, is, is not happening uh, in the way that it used to. The closest thing I saw to you know the, the best version of that by zoom was i was at a, one of these rsc meetings in cambridge uh, and they had set up things and done a very good job of trying to emulate that environment making it possible for people to chat in small rooms and and, and things like that but it, you know none of it can do, you know, anything close to what happens at the real world, especially, you know, having going out for dinner or even meeting people at breakfast time during these conferences, all this informal chat is, has, has vanished. Yeah. So I, and I find it hard to sort of stay focused and motivated, uh, you know, on knowing sort of what the best research direction is uh, when you're not getting this kind of feedback.
0: No, certainly. I mean, I've had a bit of this experience last week. I went to one of these Faraday discussions. I think that's also yes. what like. Yes, by the RSC. Um, they've got amazing facilities. You can have quick sort of uh, video calls with various people, but it, it's not the same, you know, as yes. going in, in person. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a Faraday discussion. And <laughs> it was the closest thing I'd say I've gotten to emulating a, a regular conference it's not the same but it's better than a lot of other things i've attended yeah yeah they did a great job yeah
0: okay so for some of our younger listeners um I'm, I'm sure they'd be really keen to know learn about this could you briefly overview your academic journey this far so going from undergraduate to to where you are now basically
2: yes so my academic journey was quite scattered uh I I grew up in Dublin, in Ireland, and I first went to University College Dublin uh, to study engineering, chemical engineering. In fact, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and we didn't know many people who had, uh, so I didn't get much advice. And certainly nobody had any uh, inclination towards science or, or even engineering and when i was in my second year i got very bored and was ready to drop out of college and instead of going to my lectures i started i had to go somewhere in the morning so i would go to the library and i found this book by peter atkins on molecular quantum mechanics it's an undergraduate textbook and used in physical chemistry and i started reading that and i started getting very interested in that and then i started wondering oh well How do you learn more about that kind of stuff since I had time on my hands, since I was cutting all my lectures? Uh, So after a while, I decided to quit. And my father very nicely asked me, well, what would you like to study instead? I thought I'd have to leave college. And I said, well, I'd like to do theoretical physics. So I ended up switching uh, to Trinity College in Dublin. And a very kind head of math uh, interviewed me, decided that somehow that he'd take a chance Uh, And let me into their program. uh, And I couldn't believe it when I started going to lectures and they were actually I found really, really interesting. Uh, And then I and, and the summer beforehand, I studied quantum mechanics from Dirac's book, classical mechanics from Goldstein. And so So I had actually read a lot of the stuff before it even started, which made it, you know, relatively easy, but also extremely interesting when I got to do this. And I loved it once I was allowed to sort of pick my own subject. But then later, uh, so that was uh, in 85, then I moved to California for my Ph.D. with Walter Cohn in Santa Barbara, and that was in condensed matter physics. And then it was very difficult to get a job at that time in 89 uh, as a professor. And I spent seven years as a postdoc being unable to get a faculty position in the U.S., which is what I wanted, until finally somebody said to me, well, why don't you try chemistry instead of physics? And about six weeks later, I had a faculty job uh, and I was very happy. And, uh, And that was at Rutgers in New Jersey and then about 15 years ago I moved uh, back to California in Irvine so that's how I ended up here and then also whenever once I started in chemistry uh, I was also got faculty positions in the physics departments where I was at.
0: Oh, wow. I mean, that's definitely a fascinating journey. Um, and I think it's also important that undergraduate students understand that they don't have to stick to the field they're in, especially when you're going into computational science. You know, there's no undergraduate in this. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So is is there anything that you would like to have sort of known back when you started research that you know now?
2: So this uh, is
0: a question for young researchers out there.
2: Yes. So, so well, there, there's a couple of things. One is, When when I was trained as a physicist, all I wanted was to get a job like the professors who had trained me, and that was a terrible mistake. It would have been, you know, in fact I failed to get such a job, and it would not have worked out well. It was far better that I ended up in chemistry, which I hadn't really studied for. Uh, because it sort of forces you to broaden, and then the skills that you have from one area are often very valuable to the people in the other area. Uh, So this wanting to sort of, you know, you tend when you're younger to see these older people and say, oh, I want to be just like that kind of thing. That's your model for how to succeed. And it's much better to look around and try to see sort of, things that are a little new, a little different, and ask sort of can you contribute to them and not be afraid uh, to learn a little bit outside your area and something that interests you uh, because often your skills will be very valuable in the other area and the people appreciate it. Uh, The other thing is uh, these days sort of young people I've noticed are asked to, you know, They're given opportunities to learn about many things, they're taught how to network, they're taught many, many different things, and there's all all sorts of things that are interesting, uh, which we didn't learn when we were young. On the other hand, all these things take from time actually learning your own subject, (laughs) and so... Uh, and, you know, they've become almost a distraction. And you have to keep in mind that these are very important skills that, in a certain sense, people do need to be taught. But on the other hand, what you, all, you also have to focus on your core area. And the people I learned from, you know, would often work, you know, uh, well, Walter Cohn worked 80 hours a week, pretty much every week uh, since he was about 15 years old. Uh, Now, that's a little extreme. uh, That's a little old school. But, uh, you know, the idea you do have to put in the hours to master a subject.
1: No, that's a yeah, that's a very, very fair point you make. Okay, so um, I I, I guess something else we like we like to find out about our guests who are who are faculty members um, is about. Their teaching, sort of within their mm-hmm. the college or university. So at, at UC Irvine, um, what 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 sort of um, I don't know whether you call them modules in the stage, but what, what what lecture courses do you do you teach over there?
2: Yes, so so my official position is in the chemistry department, so I teach primarily chemistry students. Uh, about half my teaching is graduate courses, uh, so that's I think postgraduate courses. Uh, and half of it is undergraduate courses.
1: Yeah, we'll uh, call them yes. <laughs> uh,
2: so, so one of my favorite classes that I taught for a long time is an a, a class for honors students who are not scientists. So these were sort of high-performing students from anything but science, and I would teach them a chemistry course that would fulfill you know part of their science requirement and it's tricky to make chemistry sort of interesting to the general public but what i loved about teaching this course is that they were actually the most engaged and interested students i ever had because they were they were smart people and they hadn't had to take many science courses so if you sort of made it interesting and you didn't focus on cramming them full of content in order to make them sort of pass various tests at the end you could have a much better time and they really appreciated it and they would ask lots of really good questions I would set it up to be as you know not as quantitative as it normally would not as math based but but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and we managed to, to sort of go from introductory chemistry to climate change by the end of 10 weeks. And, and they were they would be very interested in all the climate change science and you're sort of trying to teach them scientific literacy using sort of chemistry as a model so so that was one of my favorite things to do i don't i don't do it anymore we're sort of encouraged not to keep teaching the same thing indefinitely uh, oh, yeah,
1: yeah, that that's, that sounds fascinating so, so so when 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 you are teaching what, what, just sort of brief you. What, what would you say your your style was? So you know, uh, uh, over here in, in in the UK, we have an expression, um, sort of the the chalk and talk lecturer. So someone who sort of yes. stands in front of the blackboard and and sketches away. Are you are you one of those, or do you, or do you think of yourself as something sort of someone a bit more maybe with some interactive elements to the lecture or a bit more technology going on?
2: Uh, I'm a sort of mixture. Uh, so. I like to try to put in as many kind of modes as possible, because I think that many people, everybody in a sense, learns a little differently. And some people's way of learning is very different from others. Uh, and actually, this I kind of learned from teaching these these these, these uh, students. Uh, and so we would put in as everything sort of possible. So I would obviously do some uh, blackboard lecturing, but we would also have demos. Uh, We did demos of chemistry experiments because they weren't going to get a lab and they wouldn't be allowed in a lab. Uh, We had sort of a few very small guest lectures. We would get very distinguished people from the chemistry department and have them explain a little bit their science. Uh, We would have quizzes every day, little quizzes, and we'd also have things where we would vote on stuff. Uh, I had simulations I used, uh, there are these PHET simulations that are excellent, they teach physics or chemistry uh, from the University of Colorado, and this I used instead of labs, Uh, and in fact in some ways it can almost be better than a lab because you can get the experiment to run in a minute on your computer. and so we, we use very many different elements because different people learn in different ways, right? Yeah. Uh, and then we also structure the course so that the grading, they could either sort of get a, a high mark either by, you know, doing all the homework and all these things we would give out uh, well and on time, or they could score well on the final exam. But they didn't have to do both. And in particular, if they had, a, we would grade everything on the last day of class. We'd have a last quiz. So we'd do all the grading that day and tell them what their grade would be. And they could then decide not to take the final exam. And since this was their least uh, important subject, because they were doing all sorts of things in their own areas, right? 80% of them pretty much wouldn't take the exam. They'd say, oh. Thanks, that grade is, is fine for me, and off they go. And all this would reduce the stress level of the students tremendously. Like, so they found it great. As long, and, and also they would stay very focused during the lectures because they wanted to score high enough so as not to take the exam. Uh, it's, you know really made their life easier in, in, in during the exam. Um, and, and you could do it either way. And if you, if you fail to make the grade you wanted, during the, during the classes, you could then take the final and try to do better, and I would design the final to, so that most people would do a little better uh, by taking it, especially the ones, the weaker students. So, and this is just, everybody learns in different ways, and I think there's a sort of myth out there that, oh, there is a, a best way to teach. No, because... People So, producing as many different ways that someone can learn something, I think, is is really important because people do really learn with different ways. Um, if you hang out in physics and chemistry departments, even there you see by, by, by the time you get to the PhD level, the way people's minds work has been trained in one discipline or the other, and, and, and they're different the way they solve problems. I see this pretty much every day. Yeah.
0: No, certainly. I mean, there is definitely elements of, sort of the American university system that I admire. We, we don't have uh, as much freedom, I guess you could say. We pick one subject when we're 17 and then, you know, <laughs> you stick with yes. that for the next three years.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I picked my subject, my engineering subject when I was 16. But part of that was because if where I came from, if you were going to go to college, you know, you had to do something useful and science was not considered <laughs> Something useful uh, at that time, but engineering was okay, right? So I picked engineering and then managed to to change course uh, rather dramatically, yeah
0: Yeah. so fair. but
2: yes it's, it's 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 yeah so so the American system has this greater flexibility. Uh, on the other hand, you know the technical, prowess that you can learn even, you know, getting as an undergraduate degree in places like Britain is is higher, right? Because you do study your subject and and, and you sort of study it more deeply. uh, uh, Whereas the American system is this sort of broader thing, and then sort of later, and when when people come to graduate school from Europe to the US, they are sort of between one and two years ahead of their American counterparts in their subject. On the other hand, they tend to be not as well, uh, as broadly educated as, as the Americans at that point. And it all comes out in the wash, yeah
0: yeah certainly I've, I've seen yeah I mean you've got scientists like Richard Feynman that talk on about this quite a bit um, I don't think he enjoyed the broader sort of system that America has but then there are many of us that do feel like we're sort of missing out especially when it comes to subjects like you know computational science it's very interdisciplinary so if you're coming yes. in from a very different science it, it might be quite difficult if you don't have that broad education
2: yes and there's also kind of there is a bit of a technique to learning stuff outside your field when you don't have a background in it and you sort of do that a bit differently from stuff you learn in your own field. You sort of have to read sort of more broadly and pick very carefully the stuff you really spend time on Cause, you know and you do have to spend time on certain things that you don't get that you know other people in that subject do get uh, so it's a different way of learning things and americans get exposed to that substantially more They're, you know you're required to take music classes and whatever uh, as even as a science undergraduate but you do learn how to learn things outside your area that there are different ways different modes of thinking for different problems and that is very useful and you do see that reflected in so sort of people who have been through the american system
0: yeah definitely definitely okay so um i guess we're moving on to some slightly more computational science questions um i'll ask you a very quick one um, so are, are there any computational advancements that particularly excite you and if if so how how will this help you know um how how do you think this will change in the next 10 to 20 years?
2: Uh, well, yes, the, the thing that has interested me most is this rise of machine learning. Uh, and last last fall, I taught a course in machine learning in, in chemistry. And I think it w- really will change a lot of things uh, about the way we do things. And we're only beginning to really see the impact of machine learning in physical sciences and and materials modeling. Uh, The neural networks that have been developed over the last 10 years, I mean, most of them are sort of developed for non-scientific purposes, like image recognition and and so forth, and I think it is trickier to figure out how to use them well in in scientific uh, applications but I think we will see overall over the next 10 years, you know, they will have a huge impact as we kind of get to know how to use them better. Uh, so yeah, I think this is, is very exciting. And in a certain sense, a lot of the time, what they can do, at least at the moment, is maybe make it possible to do a problem a hundred times bigger than what you can currently do today by learning the pattern that 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 your simulation is producing and then being able to uh sort of make this you know reproduce that pattern but much much faster than actually solving the differential equations and so forth and so just having this extra factor of 100 i think will have a huge impact in lots of fields whether it's the size of the system you can calculate or how long you can run a simulation for etc cetera. Uh, so I think, yeah, this is a huge transformation that's going on, and I think it will have a big effect uh, over the next 10 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so so I, I guess maybe f- focusing on, on your work in particular, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners will be aware that the, the B in the PBE functional is, of course, yeah. but right? Because you co-authored that paper. I looked it up on Google Scholar the other day, and it has uh, an, an unbelievable number of citations. Um, what would you say you your if you had to pick? What was your favourite publication of yours? What, which publication of yours are you, are you most proud of? What sort of contribution to the field are you most proud that you've made?
2: Ah, uh, well, in, in a certain sense, that one. <laughs> it, it, it's my favourite because I think. Uh, You know, it it sort of helped pay the bills over all these years. I was extremely lucky, right, there's no question about that. Uh, And in fact, you know, uh, the first 10 years, you know, it was a nice paper and that was all right. But then slowly, uh, as things evolved, were lucky, and it was mostly, you know, it was really the work of John Purdue, uh, mm-hmm. who had uh, sort of been working in that area for about 30 years, and it was sort of the culmination of a lot of his uh, his work. Although, yeah, you know, I contributed a bit, and so I'm very happy to have done that. Uh, And although it was sort of lucky, but even if you count it as sort of, you know, 90% luck and and 10% brilliant inspiration, right, Uh, even 10% of that number is still a very large number, right? And what it was is we built into that functional in in certain ways that only, you know, over the next 25 years have I come to understand better than we did at the time. Mm. Uh, We built in sort of his intuition over a lifetime we use these exact conditions and stuff but but the ones we use the ones we chose uh, where it turned out to be capturing various sort of deep underlying physics that he kind of knew intuitively uh, but sort of we sort of wrote into that thing so so we did do something a bit smarter than we realized at the time and it turned out to be extremely useful, right? But a lot of it is, you know, just the timing of computers getting bigger, uh, materials, modeling, you know, taking off. Uh, And then also, it turns out, it's really important to have more than one uh, version of these kinds of formulas. Mm-hmm. So that people have to cite the paper to say <laughs> which one <laughs> they used, and, and that leads to, to that kind of number of citations. So uh, it wasn't our sort of cleverest or, 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 or deepest piece of work. And I have lots of I have a very nice paper that I finished a year or so ago with Michael Berry. I was on sabbatical at the University of Bristol and we solved a sort of model electronic structure problem but the error in our calculation was, I think, 10 to the minus 36 Hartrees. So I don't think there's a computer in the world, an electronic structure code in the world, that can even calculate to anything like that accuracy. So that was, a you know, using very clever tricks of his uh, in asymptotic analysis, uh, and it's slightly related to DFT, uh, and it sort of suggests that maybe you can make DFT much more accurate than it currently is. And so that paper, you know, but well, it's just one of the more recent ones, and I love doing that, you know, playing those kind of math games. Yeah. Uh, I, I, lo- I love that stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So I. I, I guess you've, I guess you've maybe sort of led on to, to kind of my next question, which is, um, you know, c- could you um, perhaps name a, 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 a physical system or, or a chemical system that, that that you've been interested in modeling, and and maybe elucidate sort of what the most challenging aspect of modeling that system has has been? Uh, not
2: so much because I, I work in so many different areas, right? There. There are just so many different systems. One at the moment is these iron two complexes with six ligands in in chemistry. And what you look at is the the energy to flip uh, the spins from the lowest spin state to the highest spin state. And this is very important for molecular magnets and things like that. And can we accurately calculate this energy? And it turns out, your standard DFT functionals are all over the place, Uh, but also I'm now sort of engaged in a project where with some friends at Argonne National Labs, they're using Quantum Monte Carlo and they're using, you know, millions of CPU hours trying to converge to Quantum Monte Carlo, and at the same time I have a, a totally, and those are physicists, a totally different set of friends who are very good quantum chemists, and they're Sort of doing couple clusters, singles, doubles, and perturbative triples, the standard method in, in quantum chemistry, and they sort of believe that you give the right answer, but it's quite possible that you have to go beyond that. So, this is really a problem that's right at the edge of what is possible, no matter how big your computer is at the moment, uh, and so we don't know for sure what the right answer is. So so this I find fascinating, and it's possible that a, a problem like this is one where a quantum computer could help, uh, because just the sort of the sheer size of the calculation with traditional methods of any type, classical methods, uh, is just huge. Uh, so uh, so so that's that's one I'm sort of very interested in but all over the place there are problems where I'd really like to know <laughs> what the right answer is and we you know we know the DFT answer but uh, who knows right yeah,
0: yeah. certainly um, right so i mean this wouldn't be an interview with Kieran Burke if we didn't ask you a little bit about density functional theory so could you give us an just a very quick overview of density, density functional theory for for the uninitiated.
2: Uh, yes, so so density functional theory is a way to bypass the uh, cost of solving the Schrödinger equation directly. So we talk about doing what's called first principles calculations, where I just give tell you which nuclei I have and how many electrons and and maybe not even where they are, and I can run a calculation, and it produces an answer. And that's the idea of first principles. You don't use any outside experimental information, or you don't adjust anything inside, inside the code. But the cost of that, uh, formally, because it's a quantum many-body problem, grows exponentially quickly with the number of electrons. And density functional theory is a very clever and subtle way of getting around that cost, uh, by uh, creating an artificial system where the electrons do not interact with each other, and the equations for that are much easier to solve, which means you can do a much bigger system. But in order to do that, you have to approximate a little part of the energy, and figuring out good approximations for that little part of the energy is what uh, occupied us now for nearly a hundred years, and uh, uh, will continue to occupy us for a long time to come. And one way to think about the power of density functional theory is that if you could take the formulas that we now use and somehow feed them backwards in time to something like 1965, You would transform computational uh, science because they would have gotten substantially more accurate answers in their calculations back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It would have taken off in chemistry much er sooner than it actually did if they'd had more accurate formulas. So sometimes at night I dream of if I could just reach for a few seconds, 25 years into the future, and look up one of the formulas that those folks will have, wow, you know, uh, I could be rich, <laughs> uh, and it would have a huge impact. So it's really sort of tantalizing that there's this formula out there that we don't quite know and we sort of spend lots of time staring at and discovering and finding lots of errors in our calculations and what it works for and what it doesn't and we know that we should be able to do a better job and we will do a better job mm. but not today maybe yeah
1: yeah oh no very interesting yeah so I, in some sense you, you've alluded to this already. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, my, my my sort of question was going to be about maybe where DFT is going in the future um, in, in that, you know, there's this maybe, maybe there are competing views. Right. So so there are some people who try to go um, beyond DFT in some way. So these quantum Monte Carlo methods and so on. Um, but, but then equally there are people who sort of try to climb the you know the Jacob's ladder of of functionalists yes in in in, in the pursuit of, of, of obtaining sort of the, the most accurate description possible I mean for, for you what, what do you think the next big thing for DFT is or will we will we not know until it's come along
2: ah uh, usually you sort of don't know until it comes along ah uh, you know in some sense it seems likely that. Uh, some of these machine learning things could well lead to big improvements. One problem uh, for the last 70 or 80 years has been uh, strongly correlated systems.
1: Mm.
2: So in material science especially, right, when we run DFT calculations, we're usually looking at weakly correlated systems and the functionals tend to fail Uh, for strongly correlated systems, and in chemistry you see that when you try to calculate a a binding energy curve and it goes bad as you pull the atoms apart. Uh, So people have looked at this for decades and decades. It's very clear sort of why the functionals fail, but it's very hard to figure out how to make them work. Uh, And so we recently found a a method of sort of studying this, and, and creating a machine learned functional that that gets this right, uh, does this correctly. The slight problem is uh, sort of getting it back out of the machine. It's one of these things where it's just encoded in a lot of uh, numbers and coefficients in a neural network, and it gives us no insight, and it sort of it doesn't give us a, an explicit formula. So my hope is over the next while we'll get better at extracting sort of simpler formulas from these neural networks and people are trying to do this in lots of different areas uh, but sort of trying to pack up the information into a form that's more accessible to people and that can be applied more generally. Uh, So I'm sort of hoping that... The machines will help us with this uh, yes and then and then and once we see what that form is we can go back to using our human insight and inspiration to improve that form and, and make variations and so forth but until we know what that form looks like uh, we don't quite know what to do with that problem
1: yeah fascinating yeah definitely yeah
0: so um... I guess we're, you know, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to ask you one quick question just to finish off. So, as head says CDT students here at Warwick, we're, we're typically trained across a wide range of length scales. Now, I'm, I'm thinking I, I already know the answer to this, but I wanted to ask you anyhow. What's your favorite <laughs> length scale and why?
2: Uh, so, okay, I do enjoy sort of atomic length scales, right? Uh, uh, angstroms and, and so forth, and chemical bond lengths and, 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 and lattice uh, parameters and, and materials. Uh, but actually, there's a very interesting, you know, so this whole problem of multiscale modeling, I think we're kind of not very good at it. Uh, we're good at looking at a certain scale. And figuring out how to model that, understanding the physics and the chemistry and building into models. But the procedure of, of moving from one scale to another is something that I think in some ways we're particularly bad at because we are are limited in our imagination usually by the models that we already have, whereas it often be I think that you need some very different way of dealing with the system in order to go systematically from one scale to the next. And one of my favorite uh, things is actually not the electronic structure but it's there's a, there's a, a subject called classical density functional theory where you do MD for a liquid, and let's say a simple liquid of, uh, or gas of argon atoms or something. Yeah, say liquid argon at low temperatures. And again, there is a density functional, a functional of the argon density, which again, if we knew it, you could then avoid doing MD simulations of all those atoms. So you think MD is very fast, but if you have a macroscopic-sized object, It isn't, you don't wanna describe it with a bunch of little uh, uh, atoms uh, repelling each other. There is a classical theory of density functional theory. If you knew the functional for these these systems, you you can then just do a one calculation of the density uh, at equilibrium for the container that you have, and it will give you the right answer. And this theory was, was created, you know, 40 or 50 years ago and the problem has been that we don't know what the functionals are and every different liquid has a different functional so unlike the electronic structure problem where it's the same functional for every electronic system you have a different one because the forces are different in every different liquid Uh, so like that thing just fascinates me because if we could just make a little progress on that, the impact would be even bigger than electronic structure calculations, right? To be able to go from an atomic MD simulation to macroscopic uh, sized objects, turn it into a hydrodynamics kind of calculation, would be fantastic. And again, I think there's some hope that with machine learning, right, you could Create an algorithm where you do the MD on training it on certain cases, and learn the corresponding functional for that liquid, and then off you go and do lots of other things, and you know do DFT these classical DFT calculations but you calculate then the the equilibrium density of the liquid in different configuration different shapes and things like that you want to know uh, what the surface is doing you know what it's doing uh, at an edge all sorts of things but our functionals are not good enough so so that thing really really tantalizes me but on the other hand, people have stared at it for at least, at least I think 40 years, uh, with a very, very uh, little success in terms of the functionals. So, so that's a, that's a, but that's a scale. You know, if if we could make progress, jumping that scale, and we know that in principle we can, uh, it would just be fantastic. Maybe the electronic one is not my uh, favorite length scale. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's the one I've been most obsessed with uh, for the last 30 years now
0: Okay, so Kieran this, I mean, it was lovely having you I think we're coming in t- t- towards the end of the podcast now um, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us um, we certainly learned a lot um, even, you know although we're familiar with the DFT but not <laughs> not nearly on the level that you are of course so it was lovely, lovely you know, interesting yeah. day
2: well, it was really nice meeting meeting you guys, and and I think it's a great idea what you're doing this this podcast. Uh, and I think it might be quite popular, so uh, so sort of keep at it, right? Uh, uh, yes, and thanks for thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, now I have to go and teach them quantum mechanics to <laughs> some graduate students here. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, you have okay. a class in an hour. Thank you. Sir. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. See Thank you guys. You.
0: Thanks again to Professor Kieran Burke and as always if you have any comments or questions about this episode be sure to let us know on our social medias. Do join us next time for another interesting scientific discussion where we will be interviewing Professor Joshua Schreier from Fordham University in the United States. Till next time, goodbye!